you guys could turn to, uh, in your Bibles, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Yeah, Pastor Morris texted me early this morning and said that he was, that he was struggling with vertigo. And uh, he tried to sleep it off, but if you've ever been like seasick or motion sick, you know, once it starts, it just has to run its course. And, but, his, but what he has is a lot worse, and so it, it went on and on and on. So, uh, yeah, pray for Pastor Morris today. First Peter chapter 1, we're going to look at a few verses here, uh, 13 through 16 is going to be our text for this evening. Uh, for several weeks, I think for eight weeks in the auditorium, uh, Pastor Morris and Monty went through uh, what we would call the seven deadly sins and explained those and, and, and taught on those and then followed that with the next several weeks now of speaking about characteristics that we should put on. There's that scriptural principle of putting off and putting on. So we put off the works of the flesh and we put on the works of the spirit. We put off uh, sinfulness and we put on uh, things that mature Christians would would develop in. And so uh, we've talked about different things, and tonight we'll talk about holiness, the, uh, the idea of pursuing holiness and ways that we can pursue holiness. How many of you remember taking your driving test to get your driver's license? Remember that? Driving with the, with the, uh, the, the person to your right with the clipboard? Right, you know, picking apart everything that you were doing. Um, if you took driver's education, there was there was there was that added added effort there. Um, you had the driver's education. You had to read and memorize that little booklet. But it all culminated in driving with the instructor, driving with the instructor next to you. That was the that was the stressful part of of the whole thing. Because if you failed, then you didn't get your driver's license. And if you were like me, you had plans that evening that included having a driver's license. Um, and so you, you needed to have that. And so there was a lot of pressure that was put on you to drive well for that instructor. And I remember it, I remember it so vividly that getting into the car, everything felt uh, unnatural. But you were very careful to do everything. I remember... Uh, I think there was like a walk around. You looked at the outside of the car, and you get into the car, and you adjust the mirrors, and you put your seat belt on, and you are very careful to, uh, to, to recognize your surroundings and careful to use your turn signals. And uh, I remember accelerating and stopping with such extreme caution, um, looking, uh, following vehicles at a safe distance, uh, parallel parking, that whole thing. Um, out here one day in the parking lot, I noticed out my window there was a kid walking by the by the window in the parking lot with he had four he had four traffic cones in his hand, and I thought, what is this? Is someone stealing our traffic cones? And so I knocked on the window, and I just stood there like this, and then he pointed to his car and did some things. Well, anyway, he was practicing parallel parking. And so I said, "Yeah, go for it, man. Do whatever you need to do." But the parallel parking was a big part of the big part of the uh, about the thing. I remember pulling up to I remember pulling up to a, a stoplight, and when the light turned green, I had to resist the urge to race the guy next to me. 
And, and I remember there was just so much pressure there to not drive recklessly, but to drive uh, defensively and to drive with care and not to drive too aggressively. And I remember when it was all over and he told me that I passed, I remember a, a kind of a, a literal sigh of relief. And in my mind, I said to myself, I am sure glad that I don't have to drive like this all the time. I'm sure glad that I just have to drive carefully uh, for this instructor, but now once I've got my license, I can just let her eat. I don't have to worry about, about uh, driving so that my instructor is paying attention and grading me all that on all the, those things. And I think I was probably a lot like a lot of church-going Americans. Uh, we're good at putting on a front when we know someone's watching, but the rest of the time, uh, we, we, we drop the expectations that maybe we have for ourselves. And, and, and unfortunately, many times there's not much difference between us and those in the world, except that we go to church a little bit more. Things like poor business ethics or dishonesty, sexual immorality, materialism, envy, envy of others' success, lack of mercy, lack of empathy... Um, these things, there many times, unfortunately, there's not a big difference like there, there should be. And I know of no text that I believe needs to be burned into the thinking of American Christians more than 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. So the audience of this letter uh, to the churches uh, is in scattered, scattered in Turkey. We can see in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those were persecuted, uh, scattered Christians all throughout the region of, of, of Turkey. And Peter was writing to these, to these believers, and many of them came from pagan backgrounds, and they lived in a pagan society where there was much pressure to conform. And Peter does something interesting to a persecuted people, to a troubled people. He calls his readers to holiness. He calls his readers to holiness. And he does it in light of the coming of, of Jesus Christ. And he does it in light of the holy character of God that calls us into, into salvation. And so we can, see, we can see as we make our way through the first several verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, that he lays out how great a salvation that it is. And he's writing to this scattered, these scattered pilgrims, these scattered persecuted Christians through Turkey, and he, he highlights this incorruptible inheritance that they've received. And then he gets down to verse 13, and he gives some imperatives. He says this in verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. The word holy means to be separate. When it's applied to God, it points to his transcendence and his, 
that he is above and he is beyond his creation in such a way that he's completely distinct from it. And contained in the word is the notion of God's purity, that God is completely and totally separate from all sin. And then when God calls us to holiness, it means that we're to be set apart from the world, set apart unto God for his use. Separated from sin and separated unto God. But since sin dwells in us at such a a core of our being as fallen creatures, how can we ever hope to be holy? When we need to understand that there are three senses in which we are to be holy or to be sanctified as God's people. Number one, the moment that we put our faith in Christ as Savior, we are positionally sanctified or we are set apart unto God. So positionally, we are sanctified. Positionally, we are holy. It's because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has clothed us. And so we are positionally sanctified. Secondly, then, we should be, uh, then we must be progressively sanctified by growing in holiness. This process won't be complete as long as we're in this body, but uh, with the, the, the Holy Spirit and with our, with our ascension to it, then we must be actively at work in progressive sanctification. Galatians 5.16 says this, Walk not in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Romans 8.13 says, If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if, if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And then later on in Romans 8.29, the Apostle Paul says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. So there is a, there is a progressive sanctification that we should be uh, more conforming to the image of Christ, that we should go through life having victory over sin and, 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 and sharing in the same victory that Christ has, and that we should progressively be conforming to the image of Christ, that we should progressively be sanctified, that we should distance, be distancing ourselves from sin. And then thirdly, when we meet the Lord, then we'll be perfectly sanctified, made completely like Him. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So you can't get to heaven by striving to be holy. Good works cannot pay the penalty of sin. Only the shed blood of Christ can satisfy the justice of God. We put our trust in him, not in our good works, but... If our faith in Christ to save us is genuine, then it will manifest itself in progressive sanctification and progressive holiness. If a person's not striving against sin and seeking to grow in holiness, it's doubtful whether that person had a saving faith. It's doubtful that that person is born again. Because there should be at least a desire for sanctification. There should be at least a desire to be more like Christ. And yes, we know the battles that we fight against our, uh, the sins that beset us are real. And those, uh, in fighting those battles, many, time, many times we, we fail in those things, but there should be a trajectory that we're going towards. And so that's the way to understand, that's the way to understand as we pursue holiness. 
And so in this chapter here, in just these short four verses, Peter shows us three ways that we can be developing or pursuing holiness. As, as those of us that have trusted Christ as our Savior, three ways that we should be pursuing holiness. Number one, focus on Christ's coming. How do we pursue holiness? What is a way that we can pursue holiness? Number one, per, focus on Christ's coming. Read with me again verse 13. The Bible says this, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. So that's interesting, that's interesting uh, phraseology there. But he's saying prepare your mind for action. Peter says prepare your mind for action. He says this, uh, be sober, be serious-minded, be, be, uh, be uh, vigilant. And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or to rest your hope fully on the grace. So the command is to have a determined focus on the grace that will come when Christ returns. And so a way that we can be pursuing holiness that Peter is speaking to this persecuted, scattered church in a pagan culture is to focus on Christ's coming. So there's this command that, that we can look to that hope, that blessed hope of Christ in his return. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's pretty fitting. How many of you know that when you were in school, or if you're still in school, that when your teacher left the classroom for a period of time, there was always someone in the classroom that was looking to uh, I guess, have a little fun. Maybe they were the ones that would ball the paper ball up, or they would throw an eraser, or they would act up. And so there was mayhem sometime that happened in a classroom without a teacher. And that, the, the level of mayhem increased the longer that the teacher was out. But when the teacher walked back into the classroom, everything settled back down, right? Everything would settle back down. Or how about this illustration? Have you ever been threatened by your mother that your father's coming home and you've been acting a fool all afternoon and dad's going to show back up and you better straighten up? And you know when, when, when you hear dad's tires hit the gravel in the driveway, then things get serious again. Or how about this? When you're driving in your car and you're, you're on a county road and you're, you're flying, you're going way, way faster than the speed limit allows for, and you've got the radio on, you've got the window down, your hands out the window, you're singing at full throat, and uh, you, drive past, you drive past a county mountain and you see the lights behind you. What happens, right? Uh, you turn the radio down, you sit up straight in the car, you, uh, you roll the window up, you behave yourself. The truth of the matter is, is that the presence of authority changes behavior. Jesus is coming soon. And there should be, Peter says, there should be an urgency to live righteously and to pursue holiness in light of the fact that one day soon we will see him and that he sees us. And there are really three aspects of this focus on Christ's coming focus. Uh, aspect number one is it begins with the mind. 
Peter says at the beginning of this, gird up the loins of your mind. So this is a figure of speech. It stems from the fact that the men in those days would wear these robes, and, and when they were uh, needing to, to, to work, some arduous work, or they were going to be in a battle, or they needed to, uh, to be a little, uh, you know, roll up their sleeves in a sense, they would, they would gird their loins. They would take the, their, their, uh, their robes, and they would tuck it into their belt, and they would be ready, they would be ready, uh, for, uh, for work, to, to be rid of the hindrance. So this is, the idea is this, to be mentally prepared for combat or action in the realm of holiness. One commentator said it like this, we must begin to act as those who mean business concerning the matter of holiness. And so Peter calls them to be ready for action, to be ready for business. And, and, and the point here is, as he says, do this to your mind, to gird up the loins of your mind, the point is this, and this is important, that holiness begins in your thought life. Holiness begins in your thought life. See, what you think determines how you act and how you live. One of the most practical things I can tell you about the Christian life is that to deal with sin on the thought level. If, if we could deal with sin on the thought level, we would go a long way to being obedient to what Peter is, is talking about here. What do I mean practically? If you, if you are envious of someone, judge it in your mind. Confess it. Ask God to replace it with, with his love for that person. If you're lusting after a woman or a man that's not your spouse, deal with it instantly. Flee from it both mentally and physically. And as Paul put it, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul, in his second letter to the church in Corinth, says this, casting down imaginations or arguments and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. It's on the thought level that our Christianity is either real or fake. You can fool everyone else, but God knows your thoughts. And the, the idea is that, the idea is that we, we, have to, uh, we have to man the battle stations of our mind, and we, we must uh, get our minds ready, and we must discipline our minds. And before sin uh, is manifested in actions, it happens in our minds first. And so we have to be ready with that. We have to guard our minds. There's, there's, it's, it's, important, it's important that we do that. There's, there's, you can't live life and expose yourself to, to, to garbage, whether it's online or on the television or whatever, and expect, and, and to the ignorance of God's word, and expect for your thought life to be correct. So there's, there's this idea that Peter says that we must fix our hope completely on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And holiness begins in our minds as we think of our Savior and that gracious salvation that we will fully experience when he returns when he returns and we are changed into his likeness. So another aspect of this is that it requires spiritual alertness. As we focus on Christ's coming, number one, it begins in the mind, and it requires spiritual alertness. He says there, be sober. Literally means don't be drunk. 
And it's a favorite word for Peter. Peter uses it three of the six times that it's found in the New Testament. Um, all, all in his first epistle here. In chapter 1, verse 13, in chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 8, it means this, to be alert and to be self-controlled. It refers to clarity of mind and resulting in good judgment. And Peter uses it in chapter 5, verse 8, when he says to be sober, be vigilant. And so if we're going to pursue holiness, it's going to require a spiritual alertness. If you were locked in a small room that was completely void of light, no windows, um, and it was dark, no light getting in from or under the door, and it was a completely dark room, completely black room, and you were in there with a wild lion, don't you know that every one of your senses is going to be ramped up? Your sense of hearing, because you're waiting to hear you're waiting to hear the steps of the lion. And your sight, you're really straining that, you're really straining for your eyes to maybe see a movement in the dark somewhere. Your sense of smell, your sense of feel, all of those things are going to be ramped up very alert. And so it's, it's the idea that we live in enemy territory. And if we feed our mind on the garbage of the world and don't feed on God's word, that it's like getting drunk and staggering outside or staggering in, in a room that we're, that we're not aware of what's going on haphazardly and flippantly, and there's a roaring lion. And so, uh, so it's, it's important that we, that we have spiritual alertness. Now, some might say this, Jason, boy, this sounds pretty legalistic, but I want you to notice with me the latter part of verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you, the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a motivation here as we focus on Christ's coming. There's a motivation that's by grace. It says hope to the end. Grace, uh, God's grace is the motivation for holy living. The wherefore in, chapter, in, in, in uh, verse 13 also points us back to that great salvation that Peter was speaking to the church in Turkey uh, through verse 12 about. He's pointing back to that grace. So it's motivated by grace. It's all motiv motivated by grace. Peter talks about it there. The present participle brought unto you hints at the fact that we've already begun to enjoy what God's going to unveil completely when Christ returns. Why does Peter tell us to focus on the grace that would be brought to us when Christ returns rather than the grace that we've already experienced? I think it has something to do with the audience of, of, the, of the time. See, this audience was, was uh, those that were reading his letter were under tremendous trials and persecution and, and, um, and pain and fear. And so he says something similar to this, that you've already tasted God's salvation in Christ, but you've not seen anything yet. Hold on through the trials. Focus on the fact that God's going to bless you beyond what you can ever imagine, not based upon what you deserve, but based upon his undeserved favor. And that future grace should motivate us to live holy lives right now, no matter how much we suffer. And so number one, focusing on Christ's coming is a way that we can pursue holiness. Number two, be obedient in all of life. Be obedient in all of life. 
Let's read verse 14 together. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, verse 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Be obedient in all of life. There are three things involved in such obedience. Number one, establish habits of obedience. He says, as obedient children. And that's a Hebrew expression that means characterized by obedience or habitually obedient. And the implication is this, that God's our Heavenly Father, whom we obey. And His Word is His will, and we obey. And that we should have a conditioned response. And such obedience is not legalism, but rather it should characterize those of us under grace. And he even, he even quotes from the law when he says, Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. And so we're not under the moral laws or the, the civil laws of the Old Testament. But God's moral law stems from his holy nature and is just, ap- just as applicable under grace it was under the law. So as God's children, Peter say in this, that we should uh, get into the habit of asking, what, what does God say I'll be obedient. There's, there's, a, um, there's a process of getting into the habit of being obedient. Just as being disobedient is a habit, so is being obedient. I think about it like this. We have, we have um, some trails that are in our backwoods at our house. And, uh, and over the years, the kids have, have uh, developed some some trails for their, for their ATV, for their four-wheeler, and their dirt bikes. And initially, initially when they began the process of, of, of carving those trails out, there wasn't much there. It was just spots between trees or maybe a, a, flat, a flat area that, that was uh, consistent. And as, as they would drive through there, they would, they would make paths through the trees. And so they would be on that path, and they would go on the, on the path with their four-wheeler consistently. But when they wanted to, when Ethan or Grant wanted to uh, veer off of that path and, and maybe make a new path, that first time leaving that path onto, the, onto the, the, the forest floor was a difficult thing to do, especially at low speed, where you'd have to pull the four-wheeler up out of, while you're driving, pull the four-wheeler up out off of the well-worn track and create a new path. And there were trees to cut down, and there were wild grapevines to cut down. And right, Tony? Uh, he's got a beautiful woods behind his place. I model mine like in a miniature version after yours, Tony. But, but it's difficult. It's difficult taking, being on a particular path, starting a new path, starting a different way to go in, in, in the woods. And I think about obedience and disobedience in the same way. To... To carve, out, uh, to, to, to carve out a path that you normally don't go down, to move from disobedience to obedience, when you've habitually been disobedient, takes effort. And just like pulling that four-wheeler off of the path for the first time and navigating through some trees and vines and poison ivy and, um, and just underbrush, it takes some effort. But that second time is a little bit easier, and that third time is a little bit easier. And over time and over weeks that go by, that path is as well-worn as the original path was. 
And so Peter is saying here that we need to establish habits of obedience. And you say, Pastor Jason, that's tough. I've got this really bad habit that I need to stop and I need to be obedient in, in this area of my life. And it's tough. Yeah, it is tough. It is difficult. But there's something about, there is something about intentionally going into the Word of God with, a, with an attitude and a spirit of, I'm going to be obedient to what I read. And having known, then, you, then you, that becomes a part of you, and you just develop this, this habit of obedience. I'm just going to be obedient in this. I'm going to put off the old works. I'm going to put on the new. I'm going to cast off the works of the flesh, and I'm going to let that, that positional righteousness that I have in Christ be my practical righteousness. I'm going to pull up off of the path that I've well-worn in disobedience, and I'm going to create a new path of obedience. And listen, God blesses that. God blesses that. And when you see the victory that God gives you, it's a little easier the next time and a little easier the next time. And you know what? You'll, you'll, you'll mess up and you'll get back onto that habit. And we're talking about pursuing holiness. But it's God's will that we're holy. And so God's going to bless our attempts in holiness with his help. So, so disobedience is a habit, but so is obedience. Establish habits of obedience. Secondly, I see in this, uh, that's involved in such obedience, make a break with our past lifestyle. Make a break with our past lifestyle. Look what he says in verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust of your ignorance. Not conforming ourselves according to the former lust in our ignorance. The word conformed is used only one other time in the New Testament, and it's used by Paul in Romans chapter 12. Paul says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And there's that concept again, that you may prove what, is, uh, what the will of God is, uh, that is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Uh, there's a paraphrase that the commentator Phillips says. He says this, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your mind from within. And so what, what does that mean? What's our past lifestyle that he's speaking of? Remember who he's writing to, and you can see a lot of the, the similarities that we would have to the people that he's writing to also. But our past lifestyle was marked by our efforts to fulfill our our personally um, selfish desires. The word lust there, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, uh, refers to not only sexual lust, but all kinds of self-seeking uh, lust, whether they're directed toward uh, wealth or power or pleasure. But these, these lusts have full influence in the life of unbelievers because, because why? Because they're ignorant of God and His holiness and His grace is revealed in His word. But as Christians, those of us that are born again, we should be growing in our knowledge of God. And in that growth, then, we don't have to be controlled by the selfish desires. We can make a break with the self-centered living that marked us before we met Christ, and now we live under His uh, Lordship and for His purposes we live for Him. And I think this is, sadly, I think this explains much of the shallow Christianity of our day, and, and people will invite Jesus into their heart because they're told that he'll give them an abundant life, 
that, that Jesus will make them happy, that they'll like what Jesus is doing for them. And if he is, and if they do like what Jesus is doing for him, uh, if they feel like their lives are happier now than before, then they're happy to let Jesus stay in office. But the problem is many Christians have never made a break with their past life. That Jesus has just added to it. There's never been a repentance of sin. There's never been a, a, a yielding to Christ. And they're still running their own lives, being selfish as before. And so, uh, so Peter is saying here that there must be a break with our past lifestyle. There has to be a contrast and a recognition that I, my, my purpose and my, my driver is not what it used to be. That my purpose in life uh, it now is to conform to the image of Christ. And as we pursue holiness, we'll find that. And then lastly, we see this, that we need to grow in our personal knowledge of God's holiness. And this is, this is really important. Read with me, please, verses 15 and 16. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or conduct. Because it is written, remember this is Leviticus, be ye holy, for I am holy. We must grow in our personal knowledge of God's holiness. This implies that, that we know something about who this holy God is. And the Christian life is a process of growing to know God as He's revealed Himself in the Scripture. And this is, there's a, there should be a knowledge of, of God that He can have a transforming effect in our lives. Now, we can be, never be as holy as God in this life, even in the next, because such holiness belongs to God alone. But we can and we must know in personal holiness as we grow to know our holy God. It's clear that no other attribute or characteristic of God is elevated the way that holiness is to God. The Bible never says of God, He's eternal, eternal, eternal. Or that He's loving, loving, loving. Or that He has mercy, mercy, mercy. But the Bible does say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of, Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And sometimes we're a bit flippant and shallow about our knowledge of God in our day. Many Christians talk about God without any fear of the awesomeness of His absolute holiness. There was one charismatic preacher that spoke about his, his love for God. And he says sometimes, he said sometimes that while he was in, in the bathroom shaving, getting ready for the day, that Jesus would, would come, in, come in the restroom, come in the bathroom there, and he'd put his arms around him and they would talk together. And, and there was one commentator that, that spoke about this, and, and he said incredulously, he said, and you kept shaving? Because any mention of a personal encounter with God in the Bible ends up with the, with, with the mankind being flat on their face in awe of the holiness and perfection of God. It was Isaiah that had that vision of God on his throne high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter, chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy was the eternal cry of the seraphim. 
And in a flash of a moment, Isaiah had this new and radical understanding of sin, and he saw that it was pervasive in himself and everyone else. And to the extent with which we gain an insight on the holiness of God, we'll gain an equal insight on the magnitude of our sin. And we can revel in his amazing grace, this God that saved us through the cross of Christ. And that knowledge should drive us to pursuing holiness. In conclusion, listen to what God says in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. The Bible says this, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. Listen to what God says. God says, I dwell in the high and holy place, with also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to retrieve the heart of the contrite ones. There's an invitation that God gives as the one high and lifted up to join him in his holiness, to have expectations, to recognize God's holiness, to see it in all of its awe and perfection and magnitude. And it should should cause us to have an awe toward him, and then it should humble us. Leonard Ravenhill says this, the greatest miracle that God can do today is take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make that man holy and put him back into that unholy holy world and keep him holy in it. So the call is this. The call is that we would pursue holiness. The call is that we would pursue sanctification. We'll never be there until we're with them. But the call is the same. The call is to imitate Christ. And it should do the opposite. So some may say, Pastor Jason, that sounds like it's going to make a bunch of, a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. No, the opposite of that. Because like Isaiah, we see God in his holiness. And Isaiah's first reaction was, was that he was undone. And he was, he was sinful. And then what he does is that he turns to his, his, his fellow countrymen and he ministers to them. So there was an upward look, there was an inward look, and then there was an outward look. And that, that pursuing of holiness will not only drive us to God, it will allow us to conform to the image of Christ, it will develop that in us, but then also it gives us an attitude of service for those that were around. And he does this as we focus on his coming, as we're obedient in all of life, and as we grow in our personal knowledge of God's holiness. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, thank you for the call to holiness. And God, I, I honest, honestly, this is a topic that's difficult to talk about because we, in our minds, have reserved that pursuit for you. Or maybe we've reserved that pursuit of holiness to clergy Or maybe we've reserved that pursuit of holiness to other people other than us. But God, you've given us this call. You say that you're holy, so we are to mimic you and to be holy. Father, I pray that you'd lead us on this journey, lead us in this pursuit. May Christ be lifted up in all that we do. May people not only hear of Christ 
in our, from our mouths and our words, but Father, may they see Christ in our actions as we attempt to, to uh, glorify him and, and uh, conform to his image. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.